Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. You know, our family members get so affected and they're not able to go through society like other people in terms of having joy and peace and forgetting. These deaths in custody are reminders and every new death in custody is a constant re-reminder of what's happened to us, not only in the past but ongoing. And I don't think we're ever going to get peace through the justice system. But I do believe that coming together, like you said, and drawing other families together is what gives us that peace, what gives us that healing. 30 years on from the tabling of the findings of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody and the numbers continue to rise. We take a look at the personal and often public toll on the families seeking justice and an end to the crisis. This is Speaking Out, I'm Larissa Berendt and 30 years on we're asking what's changed. Joining me to discuss this and the other issues of the past week are lawyer, poet and PhD student Alison Whittaker and lawyer Indigenous HDR liaison at the Jumbana Institute at UTS and PhD student Lachlan McDaniel. Lachlan, what are your reflections on this 30th anniversary? It's upsetting and it's disturbing to see that we are still at this point with this issue. Um, And at this point, I mean, uh, the level of deaths in custody has more than doubled since the Royal Commission 30 years ago. I think that that says a lot about where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people stand within Australia, and it says a lot about how people in our criminal justice system are treated. Alison, we continue to see deaths in custody occur really regularly. Mm. Through your work, you've spent some time really looking closely at a couple of uh, very significant and very worrying deaths in custody. Mm. From your perspective... When people ask, why are people still dying in custody, what do you say? The system is designed that way. So there's been kind of this enormous body of research since the Royal Commission that's been looking at little tricks and reforms that you can do to to carceral systems, which are police and prison systems. And overall, that kind of softly, softly approach has, I guess, not only failed the ambitions of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, but also taken up a lot of community energy for not much uh, progress. Um, One of the major findings of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody was that for deaths in custody to stop or even to slow down, the rate of incarceration of our mob had to go down. That one of the main reasons we were dying inside is because of that's part of a longer continuation of violence that actually starts with imprisonment itself. And so the reticence of state and territory governments to actually tackle that, to tackle big issues of decriminalisation, which families who have survived, who've had their loved ones taken from them by these systems, are still having to fight for these really, really basic recommendations that we've had the evidence for for so long. For instance, I'm thinking of the Day family whose push to decriminalise public drunkenness is an intergenerational one. Uh, Tanya Day's uncle Harrison Day, first um, was his death was reviewed by the Royal Commission and one of the recommendations coming from his death was the decriminalisation of public drunkenness, which Tanya Day was then picked up on and was one of the reasons that she ended up dying in custody as well. And so it's atrocious that families have had to continue that fight 
because of the lack of political vision and ambition of the people who are in charge of these systems to be able to oversee something where they would have a small or no role in the lives of Aboriginal people. Lachlan, from your perspective in, in watching this, you are, you are a lawyer, as I mentioned in your introduction. What do you think needs to change in relation to the system? What do you think are some of the, the key things that continue to be raised but somehow aren't shifting? So uh, I think that we need to start looking at why Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are ending up in custody where these deaths are happening. And I think that a thing that we need to change is essentially changing the conditions that lead to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people ending up in incarceration. So, for example, we need to be looking at better supporting self-determined Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander solutions to things like um, youth disengagement. In communities, we need to better support homeless services. We need to better support drug and rehabilitation uh, services for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, And this keeps Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people out of incarceration and safer. The Minister Ken Wyatt has said that uh, education for Indigenous people is a way to prevent deaths in custody. Do you agree with that or does it go deeper than that? I agree with that, um, but yes, I definitely do think that it goes deeper than that. I think that you need to be looking at things like health and education, but you need to be looking at those other issues like I mentioned about um, young people being disengaged from school and a sense of community and their culture. Also looking at you know issues of homelessness, looking at issues of domestic violence. It's not good enough to say that we'll improve education and hopefully see a change down the road. We have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people dying in custody at more than double the rate that they were 30 years ago and something needs to be done more immediately. Mm. Alison, in some of the cases particularly that you've looked at, Mm -hmm. there have been identified failings of the criminal justice system, either with police or corrections. But there's often been an intersection with the failing of medical services. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, I know you've looked at a few cases where there's an intersection. Mm -hmm. From your perspective, have we made a mistake in perhaps focusing too much on the criminal justice side of things? And what other intersections do you think we need to be thinking about? Mm. I don't think it's a mistake to focus on the criminal justice setting, in part because it creates the conditions in which medicalised deaths in custody can actually take place. So I'm thinking when I talk to you about this, the the case of Nathan Reynolds, who was a young Aboriginal man who died in custody in Sydney uh, a couple of years ago in 2018, and his inquest wrapped up at the start of this year. When I think about Nathan Reynolds, he was a man who had chronic asthma condition, as did other members in his family. He was well-managed in the community in the sense that he had his condition under control. He knew what the triggers were, he knew how to manage it, and he was being supported by community-run health centres and by his family to manage that condition. And in just four months in prison, in which he had none of that agency or control over how he was cared for, in which he was not provided with chronic health management, his condition deteriorated as part of that spectrum of carceral control that we were talking about earlier, to the point where he was having Ventolin, which is an acute relief. It's designed to fix things in the moment, not to fix chronic problems. He was having that at a much greater rate than you would have a preventative puffer, which is a terrifying thing. Um, And the experts testified to that end in his inquest. 
So watching that kind of medical crisis unfold, I think, in the conditions of prison paints a really, really strong picture that it's actually the criminal justice system in cohesion with, I guess, this ongoing medical issue that's killing mob inside when they die in those circumstances. Lachlan, one thing we've seen since the Royal Commission is an increase in the numbers of Indigenous people working as lawyers, being employed in the criminal justice system, being employed in the health system, if we pick up the points that Alison has been making, more Indigenous doctors. From your perspective, both as a lawyer and and working now in education, why do you think that there hasn't been a bigger shift in the systems, even though we've got more Indigenous people coming in to work for them? Uh, Focusing on, for example, people uh, going into the legal system as practitioners, people practising laws, solicitors, barristers, I have seen the majority of uh, young Aboriginal people that I studied with at law school not go on to practice law or practice law only for a very short amount of time. Um, Most of those people, including myself, went to study law because they wanted to make a change in these kinds of conditions that we're discussing. Mm. However, once they actually went into studying law and practicing law, they found that the focus of the law was very, very small on these kinds of issues and they were either pushed into other areas of law, which Mm. they didn't have interest in, or they became so frustrated with, I suppose, the lack of action in criminal justice towards Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that they left the practice and went into other areas. Yeah, when I, when I saw essentially how small of a focus, I suppose, justice was within our legal system, that's when I became disenchanted with it. Alison, one of the areas where you work quite closely is in the coronial inquest and supporting families through that and analysing mm-hmm. that process. Later on in the program, we have Latoya Rule, mm-hmm. who is a sibling of a death in custody, Wayne Feller Morrison. And I was just wondering, from your perspective in the work that you've done, what do you think needs to be reformed in that side of the process? Coronial inquests are really, really strange institutional creatures that I think many people don't have a great understanding of until they're actually in the fray. So a mandatory inquest is held for any death in custody uh, in any state and territory across Australia, even non-Indigenous deaths in custody. It's actually one of the recommendations of Ricky Adick from recommendation six through to recommendation 40 from my memory. Despite that, they're real centres of kind of institutionalised trauma where families kind of hear something they describe as like a victim-blaming narrative, where there's all these parties who are seeking to advance a particular story about their loved one. And they're using most of them as state parties. So you'll have police, uh, nurses, corrections staff, institutional witnesses, etc. And then amidst all of these eight or so parties, you'll have just one family party trying to represent their interests and the interests of the person who they love who's died. And, of course, that reproduces just really terrible things and a a massive amount of trauma for them to hear their loved one routinely blamed for their death, to be sidelined in fact-finding missions and just to be brought on in quite an often tokenistic and memorialising role that's quite inappropriate. So I would like to see the role of families in inquests amplified. I think the families have a good sense of what model they need to go forward and they put that forward uh, this week in a Natsal's open letter. Fifteen families put together ten points that they'd like to see addressed with Ricky Dick anniversary. And so I would probably turn to that. 
Uh, just following up on the fact that you do do research in this area, can you tell us why it's so important that we track the data? Oh, it's a massive, massive transparency issue. For the, the exercise of state power that results in a death in custody to be accountable to the community, it means that we have to be able to track when that force is used and when it results in someone passing away, but also the investigative processes afterwards. And despite these recommendations, which again came through in the Royal Commission, for greater transparency in this process, for public findings, for inquests to be held, uh, and also for the data to be coming through every year, what we have instead is a really, really slow process in which the data is kind of kept on a two-year delay, where it's up to organisations like The Guardian to do their deaths inside database, so community have a sense of what's actually going on and so they can continually update these numbers. But also so that we can see public findings. The coroner's court is a court of record in most states and territories, and yet many people are surprised to learn that they don't always digitise their findings. So currently in my research, I'm trying to press coroner's courts to give me access to findings that took place after the Royal Commission to today. And I've actually not been very transparent at all. So in New South Wales, for instance, you can only access findings after 2012. Obviously, that's a, a massive transparency problem. And it prevents us from understanding the complicity of these systems in deaths in custody and prevents us also from being able to seek justice for families by looking at what's been done in the past. Thank you. Lachlan, clearly one thing that's probably shifted in recent times is a new attention on this issue through the Black Lives Matter movement and people being able to, I guess, make some connections with what they can see as injustice in the United States and then us being able to put a bit of a spotlight on it here in Australia. From your perspective, do you think that the increased public awareness around this issue that we've seen over the last couple of years is going to make a difference going forward? Yes, I think that as an Aboriginal person, you have to be hopeful of change when it comes to this matter. Um, it's a matter of life and death, and it's a matter of gross injustice. So you have to be hopeful. I think that the Black Lives Matter movement that originated in the US is drawing more attention to this issue, but I don't think that it's drawing enough attention. So, yes, I am hopeful that things will change going forward and I do think that awareness is increasing, but I don't think it is anywhere near the levels that we need for such a serious issue. You're listening to Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Barron and my guests tonight are Alison Whitaker and Lachlan McDaniel. The iconic Australian television program Neighbours has been rocked by allegations of racism, with Sharina Clanton and Maine Wyatt both alleging multiple racist traumas while working on the show. Alison, how did you react to the reports? With no surprise. <laughs> I think there's been long complaints about Neighbours as kind of this, without wanting to sound tacky, this paradigm of pop culture whiteness in Australia, the symptom of mob and other minority racialized people from being able to get on TV. It doesn't surprise me that there's a structural issue within the experience that mob and other people of colour have while they're performing these roles on Neighbours. It doesn't surprise me at all. What about you, Lachlan? Were you surprised? And do you think this is just a reflection of society more broadly? Uh, I wasn't surprised, but I was shocked. I always find instances of racism like this shocking, no matter how many times you hear about it. Mm. And it's disturbing as well. And I do think that it is representative of racism in Australia more broadly, in the sense that you can have overt 
racism and sense of people hatred of people of color, mm-hmm. but you also have this kind of softer form of racism that is no less harmful but things like people making comments using inappropriate terms and the culmination of this can have a very serious effect on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as we've seen with the two actors that came out very bravely mm. um, against neighbours. Is it a difference, Alison, that we're at least talking about it now? Perhaps, and it might be that there's a sense that with these revelations that the industry can be forced to change. But that's also an immense personal burden for these two actors to have to bear. And it's not one, I'm not naive enough to think that it doesn't come without professional consequences for them. Also this past week, former Australia Post Chief Executive Christine Holgate fronted a Senate committee taking aim at Prime Minister Scott Morrison over his involvement in her sacking. Ms Holgate was removed from her position in 2018 after awarding four senior staff with designer watches, each worth $20,000. Alison, do you think these latest allegations will harm Scott Morrison's approval amongst women? It's hard to imagine at the risk of being reductive, how it could get any lower at the moment with the crises about rape culture that um, not just Scott Morrison, but most of the political class in Canberra are facing. And from your perspective, Lachlan, do you think the Liberal Party can restore its perceived problem with women? And if so, how? Uh, I think that it would take great action to change the Liberal or the Coalition's position with women in the polls at the moment. It can be changed, but it will take a lot of work and some very serious rethinking about how, I suppose, it conducts itself and also how it is formulated in terms of the representation of women within the party itself. Um, It is really disappointing to see that a a woman who had been performing so well was bullied out of position and the involvement of the Prime Minister in that. Lastly this evening, Prince Philip has passed away at the age of 99, as many people have noted, just missing out on a letter from his wife. But it's brought up discussions about the relevance of the monarchy to Australians once again. And of course, one of the things we discuss is who we would have as an Australian head of state. So I thought our final question tonight is I might ask you both who you think would make a good Australian head of state, who is actually Australian. How about you, Alison? It sounds like I'm angling for my own show here on RN, but I think Trevor, Trevor Dodds, your producer, wouldn't be a bad idea for a head of state. I've never seen a man more organised, more charming, more diplomatic. He's going to hate that answer and he can't cut it out. And he can't cut it out. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Lachlan? Um, It's a really good question. I always overthink these questions and I think it needs to be someone who is wise and intelligent but is compassionate and has a good sense of humour and has a lot of experience. And I couldn't think of anyone better than Arnie Jackie Huggins. Mm. I think that she would make a perfect person for that position. Well, you two are both too young, but I think you've got all those qualities as well. And because you are too young to be my vote, I'm going to throw my choice in, which I think I've mentioned before, but I would put Arnie Pat Turner there. No one's going to argue with her and she will get everyone sorted. So (laughs) she'd be my choice. Lachlan and Alison, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight and sharing your insights with us, particularly around the issues with deaths in custody, which can be quite traumatising for First Nations people to talk about. We really 
appreciate you sharing your insights with us. My guests this evening have been lawyer, poet and PhD student Alison Whitaker and lawyer, Indigenous HDR liaison at the Jumbana Institute at UTS and PhD student Lachlan McDaniel. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. When there is an Indigenous death in custody, the personal and often public toll on the families left behind is a daily struggle for justice. Coming up, I'll be joined by Latoya Rule, the sibling of Wayne Feller Morrison, who died in 2016. Right now, though, some music from Emily Waramurra. Here she is with Milyak Burra. on my face feel the cool breeze in my head as I sit here on this shore this island no other can compare
That's Emily Waramara with Milyak Barra. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Deaths in custody are often talked about as statistics, but behind each one of those numbers is a person and a family. Wayne Feller Morrison died in Royal Adelaide Hospital in September 2016 while on remand, days after being pulled unconscious from a prison transport van. He was, according to evidence at the coronial inquest into his death, restrained with handcuffs, ankle flexi-cuffs and a spit mask, and placed face down in the rear of the van. His sibling, Latoya Rule, a social worker, has been an outspoken advocate for justice in his case and has become an important voice in the broader discussions about preventing deaths in custody and in the Black Lives Matter movement. Latoya, welcome to Speaking Out. Thank you for having me. What kind of person was Wayne? So my brother Wayne was a very creative person. I would say out of everybody in our family, he was the most eccentric. He was an artist, a fisherman. He played all different types of guitar. And yeah, he was just a really caring and kind and loving father as well to my niece. Do you have a favourite memory of him? I would say him as a little bit of a prankster. Because he was also a chef, he liked to try out his new and interesting dishes on us. And this one time he put, I think he put orange juice in our spaghetti because he thought oh that goodness. he could put citrus rather than lemon. <laughs> so just things like that. Yeah, just funny little things. Obviously, you had a really great relationship with Wayne and as a really loving sibling, it must be really strange for you that so much of his life now, how he's talked about, is just distilled down into the circumstances around his death. As his sibling, how does that make you feel? Yeah, I think it definitely has taken away from who Wayne was, not only as an Aboriginal person in our community, but just as a brother. I think a lot of the time through these processes, through the coronial inquest and through media discourse, our loved ones' lives are transformed and, you know, the way that they're conceptualised, their personhood is actually in the hands of others and in the hands of the state and rather not us in these stories and these loving memories. I think one of the really important things about your voice, as I mentioned in the introduction, is that you remind us that when we talk about these statistics, they're not just numbers, but they're actual people. And I was wondering then, when we talk about the fact that we are 30 years on from the Royal Commission coming down its recommendations, that must have a very personal meaning for you. What does it mean to you to be at this anniversary? Well, actually, the Royal Commission is older than I am. I'm 28. And so to know that this commission was started before my lifetime and that I've seen already my own brother pass in the lifetime of the Royal Commission itself, um, he was 29 when he passed. So actually, the Royal Commission in some ways is older than him as well. That 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 commission got to see its 30th birthday when my brother didn't. Yeah, it's it's such an integral moment for my life, I think, to see the fruition and see the recommendations come to pass and to know that I'm now carrying the fight of a lot of people in my life, particularly people like Toto Sansbury, people like my elders who worked on the commission and were also there at the time of my brother's death in the hospital with us, advocating for us. It's sad, but it gives me a lot of hope and power to know that I carry their strength. You have been an advocate on this issue since 2016 when Wayne died in custody. 
So you were already advocating on this issue when, particularly last year, the Black Lives Matter movement got a lot of momentum. And I was wondering how that moment felt for you when you had been really an advocate without having as much of a platform. And then you saw this moment where events in the States put a spotlight here. What was that like for you and did it give you hope? So I guess a little bit of the history of the Black Lives Matter movement and the banner being used here in Australia. When Wayne passed away and when when Wayne died in custody, we had our first Black Lives Matter rally for Aboriginal lives ever, and that was after Wayne's passing. And the first one was actually on Ghana land in South Australia at the same time and the same space um, where a lot of the activists who fought for the Royal Commission also stood. And so the power in that to bring other families together at that time, and also particularly Miss Jew's family who used the hashtag Say Her Name in 2014, you know, to take it to today, we had already been fighting for these issues. We had seen numbers of 100 people show up, 500 people show up, 1,000 people show up in that short amount of time. So then to see in Adelaide, particularly on Ghana land, 10,000 people show up to our rally was just so inspiring. I just cried and cried. Um, and I couldn't speak, actually. I gave the speech to my sister to, to say because I was just so moved with that process. And also just recognising that I did spend time with Black Lives Matter both here in Australia and over in America and Turtle Island and I got to see the way they organise in their chapter meetings. I got to go to LA for a chapter meeting with some of the organisers and the the founders of Black Lives Matter in America and to know that we were organising to the same extent, to know that their hope and their passion for global resistance around deaths in custody of all people had reached us in such a prominent way that was mobilising us in shared solidarity, yeah, brought so much strength and hope and I just have so much hope for the future genuinely in my spirit. One of the things you just mentioned there, which I want to really pick up on because it's a really important thing about the work that you're focusing on now, and you mentioned that there have been moments when families have come together who've been through the same thing that you have, that there's now, I guess, a growing network of people who have experienced a death in custody in their family. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what it must be like for a family to go through this process. As I said, we hear it as a statistic. You have to live with it. There's loss and grief. What is it like for you? It's been absolutely difficult. I was reflecting just the other day with a member of Worries of the Aboriginal Resistance on this topic and just saying that as soon as Wayne died, I was in activist mode straight away because we're called to literally respond to everything that's going on at that very moment. And it was only hours after I saw Wayne's life support machine turned off that my family and I and some of our elders were sitting at Aboriginal Legal Rights Movement and SA giving a media conference that was pre-scheduled. And I had to give that with the shock and in the same clothes and with the same smells on me as when Wayne died. And so then after that, it was only, I think, three weeks. So we hadn't even had Wayne's funeral because it took five uh, weeks to get his body back. In that space of time, we organised this rally. The next day after our rally, I went to Melbourne. A few days after that, I went to Sydney for the Campbelltown rally here. And you just get pulled into these spaces that, you know, demand so much of you. And so it's been so tiring. 
Our case is one of the longest running cases, I would say. We're nearly at the five-year mark and only next month, sorry, the 27th of April this year, I'll be going back to the coroner's court for the last month of the inquest to see these corrections officers face us who were in the van. And so to know that, you know, my family and I have been grieving this whole way, we're very tired, we're very run down, but we don't have the option and the pressure on us is so immense that we've dedicated our entire lives to this. If I look at my actual, my other family members, my mother can't work anymore. Bless, I believe, she needs time off and she deserves that out of such a hard life. But, you know, our family members get so affected and they're not able to go through society like other people in terms of having joy and peace and forgetting. These deaths in custody are reminders and every new death in custody is a constant re-reminder of what's happened to us, not only in the past, but ongoing. And I don't think we're ever going to get peace through the justice system. But I do believe that coming together, like you said, and drawing other families together is what gives us that peace, what gives us that healing. And activism as healing as well, I think, is so needed. We focus a lot on the recommendations of the Royal Commission. There's a lot of discussion about what needs to change about the justice system, what laws need to change, what sort of training needs to happen. But listening to you, it's hard to listen to you and not be really moved by really appreciating what it's like for the families living with a death in custody and trying to get justice. From that perspective, what do you think needs to change to support families properly? I think the government need to sit down with us and listen to our voices, which we've been calling now for a little while. I think that there needs to be healing and grief services available for families through this process of what we haven't been given. We were given a flyer for, you know, a westernised system, a counselling service that none of my family members have actually accessed for various reasons, (laughs) obvious reasons. Yeah, we need way more support nationally and internationally. But I think at the heart of all of this is that everybody in communities, in society needs to see Aboriginal people as valid and as valued because through this process, again, the state renders us invisible. It renders our lives and our voices invisible and that our deaths are something that are common now. And part of the issue of seeing deaths in custody is the adverse effect of normalising this issue. And I think that people need to realise that put in our shoes, they would be demanding so much more. You mentioned that the moment that Wayne passed away, you became an advocate. And I guess in a sense, when you say that, we know it wasn't a choice, but it was something that you had to do. It's so clear listening to you that there is such a determination and passion. It's hard to imagine whatever happens, you will ever stop. What are your ambitions for yourself? What are your personal goals in terms of your advocacy and and where you want to go going forward? Well, I would say that, you know, being three months into my PhD at UTS, I do want to complete that. I'm the first to go and complete a PhD in in my family and one of the only ones in my family to have a degree, which is such a huge blessing and a very large privilege for somebody like us. But it's that mentality, what I've just said, is what I want to change as well, because I think internally I need to see myself as valuable. I think other family members need to see ourselves as having such a prominent voice in this matter. 
a lot of the time, and I'll say this with honesty, a lot of the time our voices are overrun and we're put to the side as family members and activists and not researchers, not scholars and not doctors and experts in this field. And I would like to see us as family members with lived experience and also those who are previously incarcerated and currently incarcerated actually be seen as experts in this space. And so, yeah, I would love to be leading discussions on this matter in future. I would love to be leading policy discussions. I would love to be leading global discussions around solidarity and actually how we can work outside the state towards self-determination for all people. One of the strategies you've adopted to help cope with the trauma of losing your brother was to write poetry, to go through a creative process. And I understand you've had some success with it. Probably that surprised you because it wasn't why you were doing it. But how have you found that process? I, yeah, I used to actually write when I was a young person, quite a bit of poetry. And again, it was never published. It's never something I thought I'd get out there. But through this process, being creative in in ways, in all different ways, has really also helped me heal and has helped me feel empowered and that I can give something to communities that is accessible, not only with the academic work, but with so much more. And so, yeah, I do have some poetry about Aboriginal deaths in custody being opened in an exhibition next week in New York. And so that's, I think, next Thursday, which would be Friday our time. And that will run for two months, which I'm very excited about. And I would love to share some poetry with you. I was just going to ask you, so could we please, it would be such a privilege. I would love to. So I was recently asked to respond to works um, within the exhibition Circles to Us, curated by Nadindedi and Ghana person Dominic Alessio for Nexus Arts. And this personal piece, I reflected on the work titled Deaths in Custody by Karen Casey, which she's a non-Aboriginal person and it was created in 1988, which is a pinnacle moment because that was when the Royal Commission began. So I chose to base my response off the work and also a vision I had the night before we turned off Wayne's life support machine. And so this poem is titled Freedom Walk and it's what I saw depicted in the work and in my vision. Freedom Walk. A vision. You were dancing with creation. A ring of red earth. Two boulders. Sunset. A peace washed over me as I knew soon you would begin your journey home. Two hundred years asphyxiated, your spirit now transcends time and terror. White ghosts pass by, unable to grasp anything more than their own reflection. Lifetimes invested in reaching bars of justice, same bars that could not contain black space. Your journey back is liberation, though your ancestors greet you so soon. If in death we find our ways back to the dust that first held us, then freedom is yours. Oh, freedom is ours. Oh, I live vicariously through your freedom walk, my brother. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm so so struck hearing you speak with us this evening, just how powerful and important voices like yours are to really remind us what's at stake. And I'm also struck by how generous you are to share that with us, because obviously each time you speak must take an emotional toll. So I want to thank you so much for coming by, sharing your insights and your experience, teaching us all with what you know so that we can understand this better. It's been a real privilege, Latoya. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a privilege for me. 
Latoya Rule is a social worker, poet and sibling of Wayne Feller Morrison, who died in custody in 2016. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt. Right now, let's take a break with some music. This track is by Uncle Archie Roach and is called Beautiful Child, the title of which was taken from a quote from the mother of Lloyd Boney, who died in police custody in New South Wales in the 1980s. This is just a message From a mother, from a mother to a son who has died in custody. Oh, my beautiful child, my beautiful child. The brightest of stars Couldn't match your sweet smile But you grew up too soon Far beyond your young years Now all that remains Is your memory You were always to blame And they put you to hell Then they locked you away In a dark lonely cell But you weren't really bad Just a little bit wild Never hound you no more Oh my beautiful child Oh beautiful, beautiful child Now you are free You're free from this heartache and pain and misery. When they found your body that day, some said you smiled. And I wish I was with you right now, my beautiful child. You've been locked up before But you always came back With your head held high And so proud to be black But the last time they came How could I have known When they took you away 
that you never come home. They push you around. Cause your skin wasn't white. And although you were gentle, my boy, you learned how to fight. And you fought all your life. No, you didn't fail. But you deserve better Than to die in some jail My beautiful, beautiful child Now you are free You're free from this heartache and pain and misery Oh, but they found your body That day Some said you smiled And I wish I was with you right now My beautiful child Yeah, but Wish I was with you right now, my beautiful child. That's Uncle Archie Roach with Beautiful Child. To take us out this evening, we'll leave you with some powerful words from actor and writer Maine Wyatt. Appearing on ABC TV's Q&A program in June to discuss his personal experiences and frustrations around systemic racism in Australia, Maine delivered this monologue taken from his play City of Gold. I'm always going to be a black friend, aren't I? That's all anybody ever sees. I'm never just an actor. I'm always an Indigenous actor. Hey, I love repping. But I don't hear old Joe Bloggs over here being called white Anglo-Saxon actor, blah blah I'm always in the black show, the black play. I'm always the angry one, the tracker, the drinker, the thief. But sometimes I just want to be seen for my talent, not my skin colour, not my race. I hate being a token, a box to tick, part of some diversity angle. Oh, what are you whinging for? You're not a real one anyway. You're only part. Well, what part then? My foot? My arm? My leg? You're either black or you're not. You want to do a DNA test? Come suck my blood. How are we to move forward if we dwell on the past? That's your privilege. You get to ask that question. As we can dance and we're good at sport. You go to weddings, we go to funerals. No, 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 you're not your ancestors. It's not your fault you have white skin, but you do benefit from it. You can be okay. I have to be exceptional. I mess up, I'm done. There's no path back for me. There's no road to redemption. Being black and successful comes at a cost. You take a hit whether you like it or not. Because you want your blacks quiet and humble. You can't stand up, you have to sit down. Ask the brother boy Adam Goods. A kid says some racist shit, not ignorant, racist. Calling a black fella an ape, come on man, we was flora and fauna before 1967. No, actually, we didn't even exist at all. But he got it, this was a kid. This was a learning moment, he taught that kid a lesson. But did they like that? A black man standing up for himself? Nah, they didn't like that. You shut up boy, you stay in your lane, anytime you touch a ball, we're gonna boo your ass. So he showed him a scary black, throwing imaginary spears and shit. And did they like that? Oh, no, no, no. They didn't like that. Every arena, every stadium, they booed him. It's because the way the flog plays football. Bullshit. 
No one booed him the way they booed him until he stood up and said something about race. The second he stood up, everybody came out of the woodworks to give him shit. And what, he's supposed to sit there and take it? Well, I'll tell you right now, Adam Goods has taken it. His whole life he's taken it. I've taken it. No matter what, no matter how big, how small, I'll get some racist shit on a weekly basis and I'll take it. You know, it used to be that in-your-face, you're your black dog coon kind of shit. Gonna chase it down the ditch with my baseball bat, skinhead shit, when I was 14 years old. But nah, we come forward, we progressive, we're gonna give you that small, subtle shit. The shit that's always been there, but it's not that obvious in-your-face shit, it's that, oh, no, we can't be seen to be racist kind of shit. Security guard, following me around the store, asking to search my bag. They're walking up to the counter first and being served second or third or last kind of shit. They're hailing down a cab and watching it slow down to look at my face and then drive off. More than once, more than twice, more than once, twice on any one occasion. Yeah, that shit, I'll get weekly. Sometimes I'll get days in a row if I'm really lucky. And that's the kind of shit that I'm letting them think they're getting away with, because to be honest, I can't be bothered. I can't be bothered teaching their ignorant asses on a daily basis. I don't have the energy or the enthusiasm. It's exhausting, and I like living my life. But then on occasion, when you call me on a bad day where I don't feel like taking it, I'll give you that angry black you've been asking for, and I'll tear you a new asshole. Not because of that one time, because of my whole life. At least I had them dance and they still pissed and moaned. But it's not about that one time, it's about all those times. And seeing us as animals and not as people, that shit needs to stop. Black deaths in custody, that shit needs to stop. I don't want to be what you want me to be. I want to be what I want to be. Never trade your authenticity for approval. Be crazy, take a risk, be different, offend your family, call them out. Silence is violence. Complacency is complicence. I don't want to be quiet. I don't want to be humble. I don't want to sit down. That's actor and writer Maine Wyatt. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we profile Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander involvement in the First World War. It's something that has to be done in this country and in this nation. You know, we just can't live under the lines of terra nullius all our lives. And this particular story has sitting under that lie for far too long. And we just got to bring it out into the open and say, well, our people did fight for this country. And it goes back right back into history, including the Boer War and uh, every other war after that. And our people put up their hands and says, yeah, I'll come here and and join in too. And for a variety of reasons, but they came back without recognition. They didn't, many of them didn't get their soldiers' benefits and all those kinds of things. Like many of them, uh, like my grandfather, for example, who fought in the, in the Light Horse, buried up in Gympie in an unmarked grave. And I just think that's an injustice in terms of the non-recognition of our people. And when they did come back from the war, they came back under a very, very apartheid system, and uh, even though they'd fought for the country, many of them weren't allowed into pubs or RSLs. And so these stories do uh, hurt and also spur you on to do something about it. I think it's a major part of trying to tell that truth because it, it points to another part of our our uh, national story, national narrative, and that is the frontier wars. And how then do we start to recognise and show that kind of truth and bring that truth out? If this 
program has raised any issues for you, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14, Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659 467, Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636 or Headspace on 1800 650 890. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Mm-hmm.